With all creation I sing praise to the King of Kings. You are my everything. And I will, I choose God to worship you. I choose to adore you. Amen, amen. Well, turn with me, would you, in your uh, Bibles to our Old Testament lesson? It's gonna seem a little unusual, um, but I, I think it'll become more meaningful uh, through our New Testament lesson today. It comes in the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. So in the middle of your Bible is the book of Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then we get into the major prophets, uh, beginning with Isaiah. There was a time, while you're turning to Isaiah chapter 11, there was a time when, uh, because of their disobedience, uh, God had to cut down in his imagery, cut down the tree which was, which was his people, the people of Israel. And all that remained was a stump. And, and it was a very difficult time for, for 70 years during, during um, their exile and then for 400 years between the time of Malachi and the time of Christ there was this sense that that um, all that was left of the people of God was a stump but before that happened God through the prophet Isaiah said these words Isaiah chapter 11 beginning at verse 1 there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, one of God's uh, nicknames, beloved names for his people, Israel. In other words, from that stump, there would come this little shoot. Can you picture that? Can you picture um, in, your gar in your backyard when you cut down a tree and you leave the stump and then all of a sudden, one spring, there's the shoot coming up from it, a new tree that is developing from the root system of the former one. He continues, a branch or a Natser or a Nazarene, right? From his roots shall bear fruit. Wow, so even in the midst of the difficulty in the midst of the desolation there was hope that that out of even this difficulty would come a shoot would come a branch which would bear fruit again listen to what god said through isaiah about that shoot and the spirit of the lord shall rest upon him the spirit of the lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and of might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the lord the very word of god thanks be to god well, our New Testament passage is, is from the book of Revelation. We're continuing this morning our study of the seven churches of Revelation. And just a reminder to you, as you think about chapters two and three, Jesus' message to the people of God in the midst of incredibly challenging circumstances. Remember, as you, as you study his words to each of those churches, that 
that this is all based on chapter one, this amazing vision of the glory of Jesus Christ that John received through the angel. And the reason I say that is because at the beginning of each letter uh, that Jesus writes to these, um, to these churches, he reminds them of who he is. And that's true in our passage again today. Go to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. Uh, at Revelation chapter 3, and we'll begin at verse 1 together. And to the angel of a church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Keep back, think back to that Isaiah passage, right? The, seven, the sevenfold spirit of God, of wisdom understanding, fear of the Lord, right? I know your works, Jesus says. You have the reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me, Jesus says, in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You remember the movie, I think it was called The Sixth Sense, one of those spooky movies um, where, where you find yourself drawn in and, and you think you understand what's going on and you're rooting for this course of action that you hope will come true. In the case of the movie, The Sixth Sense, you're hoping that, that Bruce Willis is gonna be able to, to help this young boy overcome this haunting that he's experiencing. There's one place in the movie where where the boy who's so frightened to share what's really going on um, confesses, confesses these words, I see dead people, I see dead people. Uh, and, and as I read this passage from, from Revelation today, I was struck by that. Other people might look at us and, and, and they, might, they might see uh, people, they might see a church, they might, they might see um, the capital C church that looks alive, that looks in so many ways like it's living and breathing and moving forward. And, and that's what makes the words of Jesus so haunting here, much more frightening than any movie that we could watch. What makes the words here so frightening is that Jesus says, I'm looking at you and, and, and I'm seeing dead people. I'm seeing people with a reputation for being alive. And yet, 
you are dead, he says. Well, to really understand, I think, what, what Jesus is saying to us, and as we've said before, each of these um, letters speaks to an individual church, to an individual context. There are very personal things uh, mentioned in it that were directly related to them. But each of these letters to the seven churches also speaks powerfully to the capital C church, to the church for all time, to the people of God. To, to a certain extent, each of us uh, represents, is represented by these churches as well. So, so I want to listen carefully for Jesus' words to us, not just us as a part of the Olivet Community Church family, but, but us as a part of the of the 21st century Christian church. So to understand what Jesus is saying to us, I think we have to understand a little bit about what he's saying to them. Let's think for a moment about this, um, this church of Sardis. We noted uh, again last week that, that if you look at this map of, of, um, of New Testament times, what we call Turkey, but they called Asia, you see that he's working his way around a circle. Do you see it? Uh, beginning with Ephesus and working his way clockwise around a circle of, of churches. Uh, Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum. And last week we, we noted his words to Thyatira, right? Uh, well, he's come now to a crossroads. On this map, it just shows you three crossroads, but there were actually five. The church of Sardis was, was uh, uh, really two cities, uh, excuse me, the city of Sardis was really two cities uh, uh, at, at this location, this five points, this crossroads. One of them was down below and, and another portion of the city was up high, 1,500 feet above in a fortress, a place where they could run when, when threatened, a place where they could feel secure and safe when all around them the enemy was pressing. As a result of being uh, uh, at this crossroads, controlling this major crossroads, they became one of the areas, really probably one of the world's great trading centers at that time. And, and and not just a, a, a trading center, but, but an incredibly wealthy place, right? If you have the ability to tax everybody that goes by your, your corner of the world, then, then you can become very wealthy through trade, through tax, through guarding that intersection. The, um, the church of Sardis, uh, excuse me, the city of Sardis was, uh, was at one point the capital of this whole region, almost half of what we know of Turkey was a, was a kingdom called Lydia. And that's going to come into play because Jesus uh, references that history for them. It was a, it was a kingdom that uh, had amazing power for the very same reasons that um, the city of Sardis was, was uh, a major player in the time of Jesus. As I said, the city um, was split into two, and, uh, and up above the lower city, 1,500 feet, that's 150 stories above the lower city was this magnificent fortress. I think we might have a picture for you of, of uh, the very same fortress now, 2,500 years later. 
and uh, it was virtually impregnable, impregnable. In fact, so much that, that the people of, of Lydia, 500 years before the time of Christ, were, were very uh, confident. Uh, even when Babylon fell and, and Persia was gaining power and the Persians came and besieged the city of, of Sardis, they just simply ran up that 1,500 feet. They, they brought the whole city into that fortress and, and, and they felt perfectly safe. Well, well, we have apocryphal stories that come down from even that time, 500 years before uh, the time of Christ. And it said that there was a, there was a man on that wall, uh, even as, as the city was surrounded on all sides by the Persians who could not break through. There was a man on that wall who uh, lost his helmet over the wall. Can you picture this? Um, I, I can because I've been in this situation many times. And I thought, oh my gosh, did anybody see that? And he, uh, and he thinks, well, I'll go down and get my helmet, right? And so thinking that no one is walking, he goes, he goes down to the lower things, crawls out through a crack in the wall, a crack in the foundations of this mighty fortress, grabs his helmet, goes back through the crack, goes back up on the wall and says, I got away with it, right? Well, he didn't get away with it. The Persians saw that. And, and by night, they all entered through that same crack, which that soldier had gone through. And in the middle of the night, they were able to take the fortress of Sardis by surprise. Like a thief in the night, they came and they stole uh, the, everything that Sardis held so dear. Well, that's why, that's why uh, it's so important to understand the context as, as Jesus speaks to the people of Sardis in his day, right? About 90 AD, AD 90, when, when John was writing this letter, Jesus says, he who has the seven spirits, he who, as we saw in Isaiah chapter 11, has the sevenfold spirit of God. Did you hear those words that went by so fast a little while ago? That the spirit of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of might, of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord, the, the delight in the fear of the Lord. He who holds that spirit, he who's filled with the spirit of God and holds the seven messengers of those churches. Many believe the seven pastors of those churches who holds those seven messengers in his hands. I know your works, he says. I know your works. Now we've seen in our study of, of these different uh, churches, we've seen that, that uh, for some, like, like the church of Smyrna, Jesus didn't have anything bad to say. He just encouraged them. I know you're suffering, hold on. For most, the church so far of Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira, he was able to, to um, encourage them with many good things that they were doing, um, but that he also had several things against them. The uniqueness of the church of Sardis is now I'm speaking as he spoke to the church, he'll speak to individuals later, but as he spoke to the church was that he had nothing, nothing encouraging 
just sad, right? Nothing good is mentioned. What's the difference here? What's wrong in, in this body of believers? Well, he names it. He says, you have a reputation, and that, that's literally, we'll see it again in a moment, the word name. You have a name for being alive, but you are dead. And, and the picture here is that, that when the gospel first came to this, to this great city, when the gospel first came, people received it with joy and, and and they were passionate, they were completely in, they were sold out for the gospel, right? But then as, as is so likely to happen, living in a culture of success and of wealth, where everything that you need is provided for you instantaneously, does that sound familiar? Living in that world, those who even had received the gospel with joy, uh, the joy was leaking out. There, something was changing. The congregation of this church had been well known. They had a name. They, they had a reputation, so much so that, that Jesus writes a complete letter to them, even here, in, included for us in Revelation. But listen to this just for a second. The fact that they existed was no indication of their spiritual condition. The fact that they existed and even had a name as a community of faith had no correlation to their spiritual condition. They had great appearance. They had a great reputation, right? But Jesus says there's no life in them. There's no life in them. I wanna just press pause for a second and say that's such a such a word for us, right? Um, because because it's really easy to think that yeah, if I just participate, if uh, if I just if I just um, show up, then then everything will be okay. But attendance, giving, our our good works are are not necessarily an indication of our spiritual condition. In case I don't have a chance to circle back to this later, I want you to anchor yourself in this thought. If it is not done in faith, if it is not done in love, if it's not done according to the truth, then it is nothing. Then it is nothing. If it's not done in faith, you can do all kinds of things by rote. You can do all kinds of things and check the box. But if it's not done as an act of faith, then it's meaningless. If it's not done in love, if the motivation for your works is not love, then it is nothing. And of course, the famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13 echoes that sentiment as well. But again, if it's not done, if it's not according to the truth, then it's meaningless as well. So brothers and sisters, what Jesus is inviting us to do is to bring all three of those things, voluntary response of faith. I choose to do this out of my belief in you. I choose to do it because I love you. I'm not compelled to do this. I'm, I'm doing it as a natural love response to what you have done for me, Jesus. But I'm doing it your way. 
I'm doing it according to your word. I'm doing it according to truth. You see, that's what makes Jesus' words to the church at Sardis so powerful. You're not done yet, he says. You're not done yet. Now, you don't get participation trophies in the kingdom of God, right? Um, he says, press on. You're doing works, but your works aren't complete yet. You're doing things, but you're not doing the whole will of God in, in love, right? In, in truth, by faith. You, you've started some things, but, but this isn't a hundred yard dash. This is, this is a marathon. The race is not over. You started some things, but you've not finished yet. Hold on. He says, be faithful to the end. Well, how do we do that? How do we do that? Fortunately, he tells us right here. He says, be watchful in a city that famously, the story I told earlier happened twice, not of a guy losing his helmet, but of people sneaking into the city like a thief and, and conquering it just when they were at their greatest moment of pride. Um, the, it happened twice for them. Jesus says, be watchful. Don't let that happen to you church of Sardis. You must overcome this, this tendency to over, overconfidence, right? We saw last week that Thyatira had this tendency to compromise and, and Sardis had this tendency to pride, to confidence, and even overconfidence. You must be watchful for error, for sin, for, for um, false teaching, for, you must be watchful for the Lord's coming. But then he also says, and it sounds kind of strange, because if we're dead, how can we strengthen those things that remain? And as many of you will explore in the Sunday school hour in the next, in the next hour, um, I want to remind you that the Greek word for dead also was the very same word for sleep. That's why Jesus would say of Lazarus, our brother is asleep. And the disciples said, well, great, if he's sleeping, he'll rest. No, he said, no, I'm using the other meaning of the word sleep. He is dead, right? But Jesus is going back and forth in this, in this analogy between sleep and death. We have that again uh, in our own culture when we say to someone, rest in peace. We know they are dead. We know they have passed away, but, but we use that metaphor of of sleep and of rest to describe it. He says, strengthen those things that remain. Strengthen the things that have not yet completely died. Yes, they are asleep. They're not functioning, but they're still there. They're ready to die. Don't let it happen, right? Don't let it happen. Strengthen the things that remain. And then he says, uh, he says remember how you received and heard the gospel, right? And I don't think he means the mechanism by which it came because many of them came by different ways of presentation of the gospel. No, what he's saying, I think, is remember what happened in you when you first heard the gospel. I'm smiling because I'm just at this great, great privilege of walking with people along this journey. And two, two I'm thinking of right now are on that journey. And, and 
And it, it's such a beautiful thing to see them standing on the threshold of joy and, and even, even sensing um, what is there before them and, and, and screwing up the courage to be able to say, yes, I'm gonna take that step of faith. I'm gonna believe that Jesus is the Christ. I'm gonna receive the grace that we sang about earlier, this amazing grace, and I'm gonna revel in it. I was sharing with one person last week. God just gives me a lot of chances to, um, to interact with non-believers. And there's a, uh, one now called Fred, it's not his real name, but um, uh, Fred has been on this journey for, for several months and is so close. To, um, to surrendering to God's purpose for his life. We were talking about Hebrews 11 and about uh, faith being the assurance of things not seen, the conviction, uh, right, of, of things not seen. We talked about how it's without faith, it's impossible to please God. Uh, Hebrews 11, 6, right? For you have to believe that he exists and that he earnest, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him and it was a super time and and as i left i i, I greeted him and 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 said i'll see you next week we'll go back to god's word again next week and then i got a text um i'm standing out in the parking lot and uh, tears are streaming down my face and and i said what's happening and he said i'm crying and i said yeah i got that part no, what's, what's really happening? And you know what he said? He texted back, I can't explain it, it's like an awakening. It's like an awakening. Jesus is saying to the church of Smyrna, wake up, wake up, have another awakening, right? We in our culture have had several great awakenings, right? It's time, beloved, it's time. Now we're speaking to a church, it's time for a church to have another awakening, right? What will happen if that's true? We'll hold fast, we'll hold tight, we'll cling as something precious to this gospel again. And, and having, having been reawakened, we will be reminded of the places where we have fallen short and, and we will hear Jesus' words again. You've heard so many times to repent, to turn from something to something else, to begin with, with, um, with our minds, but to let it permeate every aspect of our bodies till there's nothing in us, not an ounce in us of any desire for anything that is less than Christ. A natural outpouring of that will be that the things that we do bear fruit for the kingdom of God. When we genuinely feel and experience the love of God, then the natural outpouring of our life is for him as well. The reason I'm summing right here is because um, he had some hard words too. He said, if you don't do this, I will come to you like a thief like a thief. In Matthew 24, Jesus used the same uh, illustration, this thief in the night kind of thing to describe his second coming. I'm not sure that that's what he's referring to, to here. It could be, it could be, but I think more likely, and especially in light of history now, he was, he was, he was talking about the life of that church. I will come 
like a thief and take away your life. That church no longer existed later. I think it was, I think he was talking about, no, if you will not be fruitful for the kingdom, I will remove your lampstand, right? I will remove this church. And he reminds us, you don't know when this is gonna happen. You will not know the hour that I will come. So this is what's so important for us, beloved, to always be ready. When we have that little inkling, either from his Holy Spirit or that we don't sense his Holy Spirit, and like David, we cry out, take not your Holy Spirit from me, Psalm 51, right? When we, when we have that inkling that we're far from God, respond, right? Respond. Turn again back to the lover of your soul. Begin to do the things you did at first in the way you did them. Out of joy, out of hope, out of love. Oh, it's easy, isn't it? to be joyful and, and, and full of hope when things are going well. I, I have so much joy and hope uh, from my children and through them from, from my grandchildren. I, I just feel really good about the future because of what I see. And it's easy for me to believe in God when things are going well. But what about when they're not? What about when we're struggling? That's when Jesus invites us to press in, to remember, to respond, to repent, and to rejoice in who he is. He does end with a word of hope. No matter what happens in our country, no matter what happens in our church, ultimately, the kingdom of God is going to come down to everyone's individual response. I cannot ride on the shirt tails of your faith. Beloved, I'm looking out at empty pews right here, but, but I can see you. I can see you. Um, I, I cannot ride on the shirt tails of your faith. At some point, I have to stand before Jesus alone. And the good word at the end of this is that there are those who are are not defiling themselves in this culture. There are those who have not given in to spiritual death and decay. There are those who have not let their guard down, who have not become the opposite of love but apathetic, right? There are those who are not blind to the sins of the world. And Jesus said, you're going to walk with me. You're going to experience intimacy with me in life, right? I'm going to clothe you with robes of white, essentially saying purity, right? Because you found your righteousness not in this world, but in your relationship with Christ. And he says, I will never, I will never blot your names out of the book of life. Every city, much like what well, you can go online here and find out everyone who lives, whose names are registered in the city of Evansville, where we live here, uh, you can find their names. I can go on there and find all my neighbors' names. I can find people's names who are registered as citizens of Evansville. Jesus is saying, I think, in, a, in, this, in an analogy to that, there is a name in which are written all the names of the citizens of the kingdom of God. That book is a, a living document. It's a living document. There are some 
whose names are not in it, whose names will be written in it. There are some whose names are written in it, whose names Jesus says. I know I'm pressing some of our Calvinism here. Jesus says, um, will be blotted out. I want you, uh, I want you to stand with me in glory. Let me say that differently. I want to stand with you in glory. And so I need to be watchful. I need to be vigilant. I need to be joyful. I need to be repentant. And if I'm able to do that, oh yeah, one day I'll stand before the Lord and I am not Jesus. I, uh, he, God knows all of my brokenness and my pain and my sin. But when my name is called out or confessed before God, before all those angels, Jesus will say, that one's mine. That one's mine. Oh, I want that for you too. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I pray for those who have not yet ever experienced the joy of knowing you. Those who have not yet ever been able to risk letting go of their pride and to be able to say, Jesus, I need you, right? I need you. I pray that you might give them the mustard seed of faith to be able to say, Jesus, I believe that you are the son of God, that you became flesh and dwelled among us that you lived the life that we could not live and you died the death that we deserve. And your death was, was a propitiation. Your death was sufficient for our sin. And by faith in you, Jesus, I receive God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. I believe that God raised you from the dead to validate your death on my behalf. Today, I declare I am a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus. But God, today I also pray for myself and for our church and for the church of Jesus Christ, for those who have confessed Jesus as Lord, who have believed in their heart that God raised him from the dead, but then have become complacent have become com comfortable, God, in this life, who've said, well, rather than risking my everything that I have in this life, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna let go of truth. I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose not to love. I'm gonna, I'm gonna step away from the things of faith that your word has said are true. God, I pray that you would protect us, that you would, through your Holy Spirit, Revive us again, that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation and grant us a willing spirit to serve you, to love others, to stand for you, God, until that day when we see you face to face. Oh God, we need you. Oh Jesus, we need you. Glorify yourself through us. We ask in Jesus' precious name.